we can have our Bible reading now. This morning's reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It can be found on page 62 of the Old Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, we hear of the Lord's instructions to Moses and Aaron for the Passover meal and the Israelites' subsequent deliverance from the Egyptians. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, And I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians And there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up, go away from my people, 
both you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said and be gone and bring a blessing on me too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you join me while I pray briefly? Father, as we look at what experiencing your deliverance means in each of our lives today, help us appreciate that true freedom can only be found in your service. Amen. Last week, Ian began our series in Exodus with the session entitled Hearing God's Call. And we saw how Moses was summoned from his simple but relatively trouble-free life as a shepherd into God's service. We could say that he was called up to do spiritual battle, to open hostilities by having the audacity to approach the most powerful man on earth at that time, Pharaoh, with the demand that he let his huge workforce of Israelite slaves go free. No wonder Moses was reluctant and heard other voices whispering in his ear, intimidation, inferiority, and fear, which led him to ask God to choose someone else. This made God angry, but he gave Moses a staff as a symbol of God's presence and power that would accompany him. So finally, Moses obeyed God's call. And Ian left us with a personal challenge last week. Will we allow God to do everything he's promised to complete the work in us that he began? And that challenge follows through into today's session whose theme, Experiencing God's Deliverance, taken from our reading in Exodus 12, deals with the preparations for the Passover and that dreadful night itself when the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And this finally persuaded Pharaoh to let the Israelites go and to take their flocks, which had been the sticking point in the fractious negotiations Moses had had with Pharaoh after all the previous plagues had somewhat softened him up, as it were, but not quite enough to allow the Israelites to leave with their large flocks and herds of animals. And so the Lord instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh about this last and dreadful plague as a result of which, he says in chapter 11, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It's interesting to note in verse 12 of our reading 
that the Lord says in striking down the firstborn, both of men and animals, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, clearly indicating a spiritual dimension to this struggle with Pharaoh and all that he represents. And it's a dimension that we can easily overlook in the story of Exodus and the plagues, perhaps regarding them as just a a cumulative physical pressure that the Lord applies to Pharaoh to secure the freedom of his people from the slavery against which their cries had reached him in heaven. So the earthly struggle between Moses and Pharaoh reflects the heavenly battle between the Lord and the gods of Egypt, upon whom the time has come for the Lord to bring judgment. And of course, they're exposed as false, they're not gods at all, they're powerless against the one true God of heaven and earth. Nevertheless, there is a struggle because evil powers do exist in the heavenly realms, the devil and his angels, whom we dare not ignore or dismiss. For as Peter warns us in his first letter, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So for the Israelite slaves, their spiritual enemies were the gods of Egypt, who were part of the infrastructure of that country and whose earthly manifestation was Pharaoh himself, who along with his army kept them in bondage, a bondage which became increasingly cruel and from which the Lord in his mighty power freed them. And our reading deals with the first step in that process of deliverance, the Passover itself, and the detailed preparations for the Passover meal, the slaughtering of a lamb, and the marking of the top and sides of each doorframe with its blood, so that the angel of death would literally pass over that household and leave it alone. The symbolism there that we can now appreciate, which obviously the Israelites couldn't, is that all this points to Jesus, who is described as the Lamb of God, and whose death on the cross was a sacrifice for us, a deliverance from our own state of slavery to sin in whatever form that may take. For the Israelites, it was simple in a way. They were literally enslaved and cried out for freedom. But nowadays, there are many different kinds of slavery. At the bottom of Letak Hill, on the slip leading down to Lepulek, or Stinky Bay as it's called, there's a small sign with the word saved in large letters proclaiming that the Don Ankertil promontory has been saved by the coastline campaign. Saved from what? The gods of greed and ego 
which prowl around our island or perhaps drive around in expensive vehicles and which have succeeded in devouring a few parts of our precious coastline and creating grandiose developments on them. That sign made me wonder how to define deliverance today. What does the process of deliverance look like, feel like? And what's the difference between how Christians and the society in which we live react to or even recognise the need for deliverance? I was in Ireland last month in Drogheda, an historic town just north of Dublin, and as I walked across the De Lacey footbridge over the River Boyne, I saw this sign on the railings, never give up, life gets better, stay strong, followed by capital letters SOSAD. So clearly a number of folk had felt that deliverance for them involved jumping off that bridge, giving them freedom perhaps from the torment that some evil powers were inflicting upon them. And I subsequently found out that the organisation SOSAD uh, that had erected that notice stood for Save Our Sons and Daughters. The ancient Israelites may well have cried out to God in a similar vein because the whole nation was enslaved, men, women and children, all of whose cries for help the Lord heard, as he told Moses in Exodus 3. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So I have come down to rescue them and bring them up out of that land. And the Israelites willingly obeyed the specific instructions for the Passover, even though they may have appeared strange at first sight. And yet, only weeks later, in the Sinai Desert, some started to grumble. The bread from heaven, the manna, wasn't enough. They wanted meat. Then they ran out of water. In chapter 17, they started moaning to Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Psalm 106 describes them as rebelling against the spirit of God. The spiritual dimension coming to the surface again there. And Psalm 95 recalls the event and gives advice which we today would do well to follow. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, They are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. 
So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So it seems that the experience of deliverance requires trust in what God has already done, and then perseverance and obedience for what he will continue to do. And there are also consequences for disobedience, something we tend to overlook at times. And all this is relevant to the situation we face today, for it's clear that the heavenly forces of evil are causing all kinds of trouble on earth. Bram Wan Rouge, writing in the JEP recently, listed various spectres, as he called them, haunting Europe. War, climate crisis, COVID. And he asked, who has a vision for the future? Perhaps like many, he feels trapped by the lack of good government and craves deliverance from the current political classes, the wealthy, powerful, the entitled. He also mentions Ukraine. And I wonder what deliverance would look like to the thousands stranded in Mariupol and especially the 2,000 or so Ukrainian soldiers surrounded by the Russian military, hell-bent on their destruction. The Ukrainians have bravely resisted for weeks because they realise only too well that they face the same treatment Oliver Cromwell meted out to the garrison in Drogheda, who, after bombardment by his well-equipped model army in 1649, were overcome and surrendered and then slaughtered to a man. Cromwell also burnt down St. Peter's Church in that town where 300 women and children had taken refuge. And in his own report on the victory, he said that the Spirit of God had been with him. Not unlike the language Putin uses in relation to his special operation to liberate Ukraine, which is supported by the Russian Orthodox Church. I wonder if the fallout from the current turmoil in the world might be about to deliver the West from the hitherto comfortable way of life to which we've all become accustomed and which, as some parts of the media seem to imply, the government is obliged to protect and prolong. Yet some folk shrug it off and say that we'll just have to cut our cloth do we want deliverance from food insecurity? As a church warden, I've spoken recently to one or two of our local farming tenants who are struggling to sell their produce at a reasonable price because the Jersey public won't pay. They want the lowest prices no matter where the food comes from or who gets paid a pittance to produce it. Maybe the pressures from climate change and war will deliver us against our will from our wasteful lifestyle. Do we seek deliverance from dependency upon Russian oil and gas? K. 
Can the Americans be weaned off their gas-guzzling vehicles? Or some Jersey households, for that matter. Deliverance, by its very nature, involves change. A stepping out in faith and into the unknown. It is also a process, a journey, as it was for the Israelites. Their Passover was just the first step, a portal into an uncertain but potentially exciting and better future. Yet, within weeks, they had faltered, failing to trust God and his anointed leader, Moses, and as a result, spent the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they didn't see that they had been delivered for a purpose. And that purpose was the most perfect freedom anyone could enjoy, the freedom to serve God. At our church away weekend in November 19, Sheridan Voisey advised us to be radically faithful. Caleb and Joshua were, they believed the promises of the God who had delivered their people from the clutches of the most powerful nation on earth at that time. Yet those two were the only ones who persevered and cooperated with God in the process of deliverance. The rest grumbled and complained, seeing no doubt the giants opposing them who were animated by the false gods of fear, bullying, military power, etc., just as we see today in Russia, Belarus, Syria, China, North Korea, and elsewhere. Compared to our God, their self-professed strongmen are like the Wizard of Oz, puff and bluff. Even so, they cause destruction and harm because that's what their real boss, the devil, wants. So in these chaotic and troubling times, may I offer three way markers which may help us along our road to deliverance. Firstly, forgiveness. Let's unburden ourselves from any grudges which, like chains, will weigh us down. Paul advised the Romans, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And later, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Secondly, unity. We are forgiven and delivered individually, yes, but also as a community. 
Ours in St. Juan here is small, but together we can accomplish more than we can possibly imagine or dare think attainable. Jesus hinted at the power of unity in Matthew 18, where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And thirdly, the power of prayer, which Jesus also confirmed in that same chapter. If two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. I close with another image from Ireland, that of Skellig Michael, a 750-foot-high rock, a small island, uh, eight miles off the southwest coast of Ireland, where more than a thousand years ago, monks obeyed the call to build a small monastery and take up residence as soldiers in God's army, doing spiritual battle against the powers of darkness, which then, as now, wrought havoc on the world in the form of all kinds of evil. Robert Harris recently published a book called Returning Light about his experience of 30 years as a warden on Skellig Michael. And I quote from his description of how the locals regarded Skellig Michael. Angels were said to associate with the high places where holy men prayed. And such places were said to be bathed in spiritual holy light. The brothers of the community were said to peek from shelters to see hidden light resting above the heads of the abbots who were engaged obliviously in night-long vigils. The monastery had become, through the efforts of these men, a citadel of light, a beacon at the edge of darkness. Holy mountains become lookouts upon the wastes beyond. We are, each one of us, called to be citadels of light and to come together so that our church community can become a beacon on the edge of darkness.